as time goes on, I probably won't have much more to say before the actual topic starts in these podcasts. So, these kind of introduction segments are going to be falling more and more by the wayside as we just get into the podcast directly. However, as we're starting out, there are some things that I like to take some time at the start of every episode to explain, to talk about, to reflect on what happened previously, or just to dispense some other important information which I don't feel fits in the overall topic section of the podcast. And today, I want to talk about potential solutions to bring this podcast to wider avenues and open up more venues of discussion, because I want the conversation to continue beyond the podcast. And one obvious place to do that is on social media, which is coming, but I just want to come up with a social media strategy, I suppose, some sort of plan before I implement it, and that plan just isn't quite ready yet. But beyond that, I want to think outside the box here. So this introductory segment is a call for anyone out there who has any ideas in terms of how to broaden the discussion of this podcast and continue it beyond the website and podcast itself. So when I'm not working on the podcast itself, these are the other types of issues I'm concerned with. So if anyone has any kind of suggestion or input in regards to this, I would love to hear it. With that being said, let's dive right into the fifth episode of Na Plus Ultra, Crime and Punishment. There are many types of monsters in this world. Monsters who will not show themselves and who cause trouble. Monsters who devour dreams. And monsters who always tell lies. Lying monsters are a real nuisance. They are much more cunning than other monsters. They pose as humans, even though they have no understanding of the human heart. They eat, even though they've never experienced hunger. They study, even though they have no interest in academics. They seek friendship, even though they do not know how to love. If I were to encounter such a monster, I would likely be eaten by it. Because in truth, I am that monster. If there's one thing that I've known about myself for a long time, that is, I want to work within the justice system at some point in my lifetime. I've always been fascinated not so much by the machinations of the system, but rather the broad overarching function which it plays in our society. There's no question about it. A functioning justice system is an extremely important pillar of society. After all, how can we ensure the basic human rights of citizens if we can't ensure they aren't violated? How can we ensure your right to life if anyone can walk into your house and kill you at any point in time? How can we ensure your right to property if anyone can just come into your house and steal from you? A strong justice system ensures the core freedoms of our society. We give the members of our justice system an extraordinary amount of power, which is to be dispensed ably, carefully, and considerately, and it's such a tragedy when this is not met. I believe there is a compelling argument to be made 
that the justice system is the most important component in ensuring a civilized society. That's why when the justice system fails, it does a tremendous amount of damage to us all. In this, the fifth episode of Naples Ultra, and our second argument episode, I want to examine two areas of the justice system. First, and what will probably be the least controversial part of the episode, is taking a look at a failing that rears its ugly head within our justice system time and time again, and how it's extremely important that we address this failing with the utmost seriousness. The second part, which I believe will be much more controversial, will examine what happens post-justice, I suppose, that once we have the guilty party and dealt with him adequately, what happens next? What is the best way to deal with the monsters in our society? In an episode where we're going to tackle police corruption and our prison system, we're probably going to be going to some weird and dark places. So hold on, people, as we delve into episode 5 of Naples Ultra, Crime and Punishment. On a side note, one thing I'll always remember for the rest of my life is when I was taking Russian lessons in university, and during a vocabulary lesson, we learned both the words for crime and punishment. And thus, I could complete the actual Russian title of Dostoevsky's great literary masterpiece, Crime and Punishment. Or, in its original Russian, Plistopinia i Nakazanya, which to me just sounds so badass, and that's why I love it. And with that out of the way, let's begin. We all know the most important part of a functioning justice system, right? The one component which must be held sacred above all else. That is, the old adage is true. Justice must be blind. Any preconceived notions we have of any aspect in any judicial case must be checked at the door. And the case in question must be judged alone by the evidence which is presented. And hopefully, the evidence in said case is collected in a legally sound way. Sadly, though, the most important aspect of justice seems to be an extremely difficult thing to do and rarely plays out in our actual judicial system. We all know that there are various factors which can sway the course of justice very easily and oftentimes unintentionally. The race of the person, as oftentimes a black person will receive a harsher sentence than an Asian person for the same crime, but also gender can play a role, and especially attractiveness, as attractive defendants, especially attractive women, receive some of the lowest penalties in comparison to a man who committed the same crime. But these are not the most egregious cases of justice refusing to be blind. The most egregious cases of justice approaching with her eyes wide open are in cases where law enforcement or other members of the judicial system are embroiled in a case of potential wrongdoing. When we said before that the justice system is one of, if not the most important factor in a civilized society, inherent within that statement 
is the notion that our justice system must be beyond suspect. How do we create such a system? Ironically, by ensuring that the justice system is always suspect. What do I mean by this? Well, as always, being the long-winded guy I am, it might take a bit to explain. Before we get there, though, let's start at the most logical place when examining our justice system with our first responders, the police force. And the conduct of law enforcement has become something which is quite controversial as of late. You see protest movements such as Black Lives Matter and the recent release of Netflix making a murder documentary, both of which call into question the neutrality and effectiveness of the law enforcement officers in question. This creates two obvious sides. People more supportive of law enforcement and people less supportive of law enforcement. Regardless though, more and more people are standing up and asking the question, can our police force be trusted? Unfortunately though, the very fact people are asking this question might be more detrimental to the police's credibility than what the answer truly is. Before I continue though, I think it's fair to sketch out where I come out on this whole issue. Consider that both the recent police protests and the events of Netflix's documentary happened in a country which I do not live in, America. Here in Canada, I feel, for the most part, our opinion of law enforcement is generally positive, and I think it's important to point out a few differences between how our Canadian system of law enforcement operates in comparison to the American system and how that might yield different results. One major difference is that Canadian police are divided up into two major jurisdictions, city police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Most large cities in Canada have their own independent police force. Not all though, but for example, Edmonton, Vancouver, Toronto, all have their own police operations. Everywhere else in the country comes under the jurisdiction of the RCMP, which is a federal police force that operates all over the country. So most small towns and cities which don't fall into the large city category are within the jurisdiction of the RCMP. When you decide to join the RCMP, of course you go through training. And once your training is completed, you are placed in the area which you are needed the most. Meaning that once you become a police officer, you don't have a choice, for the most part, of where you will be stationed. I personally believe this is a good thing. Not only does it help to ensure that most rural areas in Canada will have some sort of police representation, because believe me, there are a lot of small, crappy towns in Canada where no one would want to stay and become a police officer if given the choice. But this also ensures that police are a neutral force in the community and not wrapped up with whatever particular drama the community is involved in. Let's look at the example sketched out in Netflix's documentary, Making a Murderer. This is a documentary which is gaining popularity rapidly, 
and for those of you who have not seen it yet, it is well worth your time. But it is also worth taking the time, once you are finished it, to go and do your own independent research and not take the source fully on face value. I don't want to go into it too much, but the documentary covers the story of Stephen Avery, a resident of Manitowoc County in Wisconsin, who through police misconduct was sentenced to 18 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Two years after he was exonerated for his crime, he became the suspect in another crime, a murder, after he intended to sue the county for $36 million for wrongful imprisonment. The documentary presents the view that Manitowoc County had it in for Avery and declared him guilty without even considering alternatives, and in some cases may have deliberately planted evidence in order to gain a conviction. I don't want to delve too much into my own personal opinion on the documentary because I would rather everyone go out there, watch it, and do your own research and make up your own minds. But what I do want to suggest is that it would be more difficult for such a conflict to exist here in Canada. Consider that, in large part, these police officers and law enforcement of Manitowoc County knew who Steve Avery was and had pretty much already made up their mind on him. It's certainly possible that many members of the county office went to high school with Stephen Avery. They had known of him and his family for years and already had an invested role in the community at large. In small towns, people really do know each other, and the communities can become very tight-knit. I lived in a small town for years before I moved to the big city of Edmonton, and there were definitely families in the community that were ostracized and seen as bad influences on the community as a whole. Now, imagine you had lived in this small community your whole life and had heard nonstop that this family was a blight on the community. When you're finally old enough to join law enforcement in that community, can you reasonably be expected to administer justice impartially and fairly when you have been influenced your entire life about this family? I personally don't believe you could. Now let's say in this example, the American law enforcement system was more like the Canadian law enforcement system and had some sort of federal police force. Let's say you grew up your whole life in Manitowoc County and then decided to join the American equivalent of the RCMP. You then go for training and are dispatched to a town, probably in another state, maybe even across the country, where you are needed immediately. Then, looking at Manitowoc County, the detachment of the American RCMP there would be made up of individuals who may or may not have lived in the city for very long, and come from all areas of the United States. Do you think Stephen Avery would have been treated differently if the law enforcement officers had known them their entire lives, or had come from all corners of the diverse United States and never heard of Stephen Avery or knew his family's impact in the community? 
I submit he would get much fairer police consideration in that second scenario. Of course, it's safe to assume that people in the community would try and bias your opinions towards this family, but it would be an uphill battle in that regard. As well, even if they convinced you, you might not be staying in that detachment for very long. Maybe you get transferred to another city in the state. Maybe there's an opening in California, and you've always wanted to move to and live in California. You would then be transferred, and another officer would come and take your place, and the community would have to go through the whole instance of trying to bias them against this family once again. Of course, our system isn't perfect and definitely has some flaws, but it's a very interesting and unique way of almost exporting Canadians across the country. That's why, if you get pulled over in British Columbia, you have the possibility of encountering a French-Canadian police officer. It's also a nice way for these small, tight-knit communities to get experience and get to know people from all over the country. Another difference that I wish to point out is that officers in Canada are paid substantially more than police officers in America. In some cases, twice as much. This impact is twofold. First, I argue that it reduces the incentive for corruption. Obviously, it doesn't eliminate it, but especially when you combine this with the excellent benefit package they would receive, it goes a ways to reducing that influence. The second factor is, Generally speaking, a higher pay ensures a higher quality of people being employed in that profession. With all that being said, virtually all my personal police encounters with officers in this country have been positive. As well, the police officers I have met and conversed with personally have all been stand-up professional individuals. I have a tremendous amount of respect for police officers because they have a difficult job. A job, I argue, has to be difficult because if the police's job is easy, then we would be living in a police state, wouldn't we? However, just because I believe that for the most part, law enforcement is made up of honest, decent, hardworking individuals, does that mean I believe there aren't any corrupt, ineffective police officers? Of course not. Does that mean I believe that corrupt police officers aren't causing damage within the system in both this country and countries throughout the world? Of course not. In fact, I believe police officers have the most opportunity to damage our judicial system as just about anybody does. There is no greater tragedy than a corrupt police officer. And there is no question that there are corrupt police officers out there doing tremendous damage in our society as we speak. Even if only 1% of the police force is corrupt, that makes up thousands of individuals. And given the positions of power and authority they are in, their potential for damage in society is huge. Given that police corruption is a serious problem, regardless of how big or how small the actual numbers of corrupt police officers are. 
even if there is only one corrupt police officer in the entire country, the amount of damage they could cause within our society is so great that it would equate to a very serious problem. This is where we get to the main point of my first argument. There is nothing more damaging to the credibility of law enforcement than standing up for corrupt officers in their department. When there are allegations of corruption within law enforcement, law enforcement often acts that they are somehow above reproach, that they are incorruptible, and the very mention that they might have any corrupt elements within their department is an egregious act. However, police officers are not any more or less prone to corruption than any other group of individuals, meaning that allegations of corruption in law enforcement should be treated the same way as if they were allegations of corruption in the political realm, in the business realm, or the medical realm. When people who are part of the justice system are accused of a crime, it often feels like that crime will never come to trial, and if it does, they will receive a significantly less sentence than if it were a civilian who committed the same crime. The justice system needs to be impartial, and the fact that it is not impartial to members of its own system is without a doubt one of the most egregious and deplorable aspects of our judicial system. Now, I can finally explain what I meant when I started off by saying, in order for the justice system to be beyond suspect, it must always be suspect. Meaning that when allegations of corruption surface, or a member of the criminal justice system is suspected of committing a crime, they must be treated the same as everyone else. Accusations of wrongdoing within the justice system should never be brushed off by this notion that somehow people within this system are more insulated or less susceptible to corruption than the rest of us. And when a member of the justice system is accused of being corrupt, they should immediately be suspended from their position until an independent and thorough investigation is completed. An investigation which certainly doesn't involve people related to the specific person or branch of law enforcement involved, as trusting people related to the case to investigate themselves is an inherent conflict of interest. Once a thorough and independent investigation has been concluded, we then will hopefully have enough information to decide whether or not charges should be laid and a trial should be held. If it is found no crime has been committed, then the person in question should be reinstated back to their position and given a full, clean bill of any wrongdoing. If a crime was committed, then they should receive the full force of justice, just as anyone else would. So to wrap up this first section of the argument, let me just summarize. We all agree justice needs to be blind. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen anywhere near as often as we would like. And the most egregious breaches of this rule happen when members of law enforcement or people within the justice system are accused of wrongdoing themselves. Oftentimes, members of law enforcement will rally around each other, which is a very understandable human response, but this ultimately erodes the public trust 
within our justice system. Instead, when members of our judicial system are accused of wrongdoing, they should be immediately removed from their position of power and a full and independent investigation must be held. For the charge of corruption in our judicial system, considering the role that it plays in our society and the potential for damage corrupt members in that system have, such allegations must always be treated with the utmost seriousness and never brushed off by this idea that somehow members of our judicial system are more immune to corruption and wrongdoing than anyone else. And that brings us to the next argument we have in this episode, and that is what happens once we have appropriately dispensed justice and punished the guilty parties. We talked about the crime, now it's time to talk about the punishment. Here, we're going to discuss our prison system. And our prison system is another one of those aspects of our society which has fascinated me. I've always approached our prison system as some sort of moral or philosophical bean counter. The money in which we spend on our prison system is obviously 100% necessary. But I ask myself, are we spending the money on our prison system in a manner which benefits society as a whole, not just the people entangled within the system, and are we actually getting any sort of return on investment on the money we do spend on our prison system? With this in mind, you have to ask yourself, what is the function of prisons in our society? And when we ask that question, I see there's two possible answers which can be serviced. One, the function of our prison system is to punish those who have done wrong in our society. Or two, the function of our prison system is to reform those who have done wrong in our society and eventually return them to the outside world and hope that they become productive members of it. Now, I think it's also important to ask ourselves, are these two goals mutually exclusive. Is it possible to both punish and reform prisoners? And I think this largely depends on your own interpretation of what punishment constitutes and what reform would constitute. Generally speaking though, I find that prison systems in different countries lean towards punishment or lean towards reform. I personally haven't seen an example that meets my criteria of bouncing both. So while I don't necessarily believe it's impossible to have a system which bounces both reform and punishment, I have yet to see it. But if I could see it, I would love to. Because it would make the rest of this argument entirely unnecessary. Because if we concede that your prison system has to lean towards one or the other, then we have to decide which one has the best outcomes for society. And while I believe that a prison system based on punishment is a much easier pill for the rest of society to swallow, however, when you consider all the variables in question, a punishment system is not as effective for the rest of society as a reform system is. Let's break this down a little bit more. What would constitute a society focusing on punishment over reform? I would say societies geared towards punishment are hallmarked by things such as mandatory minimums, the death penalty, longer sentences for crimes, and harsher parole measures. 
the prison in a punishment society can be characterized as a terrible place for terrible people. Virtually all it would be is a place in which we can house people who are dangerous to society so they don't intermingle with everyone else. And the worse their experience in prison also means the punishment for their crime will be greater. When we look at a more reform-oriented prison system, we'll see things like more flexible sentencing, no death penalty, and prisons which seem to be far more comfy and have more freedom in comparison to punishment prisons and also contain a variety of programs and courses allowing prisoners to take up different and newer tasks as well as adding a few skills to their repertoire while they are in prison. And I firmly believe that a reform-oriented system is superior to a punishment-oriented system. And before I tell you why, I do want to say I understand the reason people in general are more partial to a punishment system than a reform system. We all want to see those who have done wrong punished as harshly as we can for their crimes, especially if you have had the unfortunate circumstance to be a victim of a crime or be close to someone who has been a victim of a crime. And for those people, I completely understand the want for criminals to be punished to the absolute maximum extent of the law, and sometimes to a further extent than the law requires. And this advances the two main arguments over why a punishment system is better than a reform system. That one, from a larger societal perspective, we will all sleep better at night knowing that the terrible people are undergoing a terrible punishment for their crimes. Our collective consciousness sits better when we know that the monsters in our society are treated like monsters. The other argument that is advanced in favor of the punishment system is that the harsher the punishments, the greater the deterrent for committing a crime is. That if you know a harsh punishment awaits you for committing a crime, then you will be less likely to commit that crime. Unfortunately though, human psychology just doesn't seem to work that way. And that brings me to the first reason why I believe a reform system is superior to a punishment system. That a punishment system is ultimately less effective in accomplishing its stated goals than a reform system. To illustrate this, I want to talk briefly about the effects punishment has on human behavior. Ultimately, the goal of punishment is to reduce the occurrences of a certain behavior. And there are two ways in which we can punish behavior. On the flip side, there is also two ways we can reinforce behavior. Reinforcement, on the other hand, is trying to increase the likelihood of a behavior through an action. Both reinforcement and punishment come in two varieties. Those are positive and negative. And they're not positive or negative in a moralistic sense, but more so a mathematical sense. Let's start with reinforcement. There is positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is described as bringing something into existence which will 
increase the occurrence of said behavior. So an example of positive reinforcement would be giving a candy to a child who has cleaned their room. By bringing the candy into existence, you're hoping to increase the behavior of the child cleaning their room. Negative reinforcement is taking something out of existence that will hopefully increase the occurrence of said behavior. And negative reinforcement is a lot more common than people think it is. A great example of negative reinforcement is when you're driving along without your seatbelt on and the little put your seatbelt on indicator is flashing and making really irritating noises. After you put your seatbelt on, then the flashing and noises stop. So this is negative reinforcement. You are taking something out of existence and trying to increase the behavior. In this case, you are taking the flashing and noises of the seatbelt indicator out of existence by putting the seatbelt on, thereby increasing the behavior of you putting the seatbelt on in order to not have to endure the annoying flashes and noises in the future. On the flip side, positive and negative punishment are the exact same definitions except the goal is to decrease said behavior rather than increase it. Positive punishment, therefore, is bringing something into existence in the hopes of diminishing that behavior. So it would be something like spanking a child who has done something wrong. You have brought something into existence, the spanking, in hopes of diminishing the wrong behavior in the future. Negative punishment is taking something out of existence and hoping that it will reduce the behavior in the future. Negative punishment would be something like grounding the child or taking away his TV privileges because he has done something wrong. So you have taken something out of existence, his TV privileges, in hopes of decreasing the wrong behavior in the future. There is, of course, one last possible way you can react to behavior, and that is no response at all. And this can be surprisingly effective. But the question is, what does the research show about punishment, and which forms of punishment are the most effective? Unfortunately, though, the research on punishment shows it's not as effective as we all hope it would be. And when it is effective, it is only within constrained circumstances. The research does show that negative punishment is far more effective than positive punishment. This is because positive punishment, especially on children, shows that they internalize the punishment, meaning they feel the punishment is more directed at themselves for the type of person they are, rather than the behavior in which they engaged in. So they feel you're punishing the person, not the behavior. While negative punishment has the exact opposite reaction. They feel more you are punishing the behavior rather than the person themselves. So if you're going to punish somebody, try to go the negative punishment route. But punishment in general, both forms of punishment, have one serious flaw, and that is they're only effective when the Punisher is around. And I'm not talking about the comic book character, the Punisher, but rather the person or thing that instigated the punishment in that scenario. To do this, let's talk about my cats. 
My cats know that neither my wife and I like it when they jump up on the counter. So, when we're around, our cats will refrain from jumping on the counter because they know we will punish them if they do. However, when they're out of the house or think we're otherwise incapacitated, I know they will jump up on the counter. Sometimes when I come home, I can hear them jumping off the counter, and more than a few times, I've woken up in the middle of the night to see them on the countertops. So, what is the lesson here for us in human terms? That the cats will commit the crime, jumping on the counter, if they know or have a reasonable assumption that they won't be caught while doing it. And the same basic rule can be applied to our society. That if the criminal believes they can get away with the crime, they're going to commit the crime anyway, regardless of how harsh or punishment-oriented our prisons might happen to be. And human beings naturally assume that we're better than the average, so I submit most criminals believe in their mind that they've come up with the perfect plan and will never be caught, even if that plan is terrible. So even if a terrible plan is enough to convince a criminal they won't be caught, it completely undercuts the punishment system. What's interesting, though, is that reinforcement doesn't seem to be as contingent as the reinforcer being around, meaning that reinforced behaviors will continue in absence of a reinforcer. So the key psychological lesson here is that it is more effective to reinforce the behavior you like rather than punish the behavior you don't like. So when your friend, child, or significant other does something that you want them to continue doing, you better reinforce it. And you'll see some pretty stunning results. The second reason I believe a reform system is superior to a punishment one is because it's a far more effective use of the investment we make into the prison system. Because, like it or not, our tax dollars pay for those prisons. And I, personally, want to make sure I'm getting the most effective use for my money. So, what's the most effective bang for your buck, so to speak? Reasoning it out, it becomes clear that a reform system would be much better value for money than a punishment system. This is because, ultimately, convicts are going to get out of prison and at some point attempt to rejoin the larger whole of society, or at least the vast majority of convicts will, barring, of course, violent murderers and other dastardly criminals. So given that these convicts will eventually get out, it would be the most beneficial outcome for society if convicts were able to rejoin the outside world as seamlessly as possible and become productive tax-paying members of our society. In other words, the best outcome for our money spent would be to create productive members of society who can rejoin it and start paying taxes rather than us having to continually pay for them. If we continually punish them, all that we ensure in doing is that we, the taxpayers, will be on the hook for them for the rest of their lives. Because all the money spent in a punishment system 
only amounts to a dungeon which keeps the lesser elements of society away from those who do not wish to fraternize with them. There is absolutely no return on investment, because if we don't invest anything in reforming our prisoners, then they won't be able to reintegrate with society when their sentence is up, which only ensures they will somehow wind up back in prison and we will have to continue paying for them. Essentially, there are two ways we can deal with the monsters in our society. We can either treat them like monsters and thereby ensuring that we become a little bit like them ourselves, or we can try and turn the monsters back into human beings. And we're only going to do that if we treat them like human beings. I recognize, though, that this is an extraordinary amount to ask of people, as treating the monsters like humans is definitely not within human nature. With that being said, though, in a punishment system, nonviolent criminals or non-monsters who go into the system are almost guaranteed to wind up as monsters when they come out of it, because we've spent their entire sentence telling them how awful they are, how terrible they are, and of course, people are going to internalize that and inadvertently become monsters themselves. And I personally think spending money to create monsters is a huge waste of taxpayer resources. However, treating the monsters like humans can yield extraordinary results. And it's those little flashes of normal humanity that can be the most compelling in securing prisoner compliance. I'm a huge fan of the game Prison Architect, and I remember when I was watching one of their videos about an update for the game, because they always release a video with every update, they talk about what they've added and how they came to the conclusion to add that specific feature into the game. One of the game aspects they added are these random scenarios in which politicians will come in and ask you to ban certain things in your prison. This was inspired by something which happened within the UK's prison system, in which it was found out that inmates were regularly watching TV. There was a public outcry over this. How can we have these horrible criminals sitting around and enjoying TV? They're supposed to be in there for punishment. So the politicians acted and banned TVs within prisons. The one stickler fact here is that nobody actually asked the prison staff whether or not this would be a good idea because prison staff, after this ban was being debated, came out and said, wait a second, TV is one of our greatest compliance tools that you can get even the hardest criminals to comply by threatening to take away their TV privileges. And it just goes to show how valued these tiny little aspects of humanity are. When you treat people like humans and give them human privileges, they are going to be more inclined to act like humans. And if a convict is treated like a human during the duration of his sentence and has the opportunity to access reform programs and learn new skills, they will have a far greater chance of successfully reintegrating with the outside world and become productive, taxpaying members of society. Which is why I argue that a reform system 
is not only more effective in terms of money spent into the prison system, but it is also the most moral way to craft your prison system. Now, I'm going to end our argument here by anticipating two potential counter-arguments which I might receive. One is that not all convicts are reformable. Not everyone in prison is able to be reformed into a productive member of society. Sometimes the best we can do is to just lock them up. And this is something I definitely agree with. There are some individuals out there who are just too dangerous to ever be given a chance back at living a normal life within society. At that point, though, it's up to the parole system to help weed out those who are reformable and those who are not. And the best we can do here is ensure that our parole officers are equipped with the right tools to make that call. The next counter-argument I see is people saying, well, what if we release these people thinking that they're productive members of society, yet they turn around and commit a crime? I bet you'd feel like a pretty big idiot then, Spencer. And yes, I probably would. And no matter how great the reform system we craft, there will always be a chance of recidivism, which is why I believe if you're released from prison and commit another crime, then there should be no mercy. I strongly believe in second chances, but I don't believe in thirds. And with that, we have come to the conclusion of my crime and punishment argument. I like that in the last argument, I made what many consider to be a strong right-wing argument. And this time, I get to sound like a total bleeding-heart liberal. But these questions of how our justice system should be run are extremely important to consider. We have to always be thinking about ways in which we can improve our justice system, whether that's morally or practically. And I don't necessarily believe those two things are mutually exclusive. It's a part of our society which is far too important to become complacent on. And with that being said, we are at the end of our argument section for episode 5 of Naples Ultra. I hope you'll join us for the next segment, and I hope you'll join us next week for episode 6 and our second engagement episode in which we'll be looking at the life but also work of Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius. So stay tuned for episode 6, The Emperor's Burden. But for now, it's mail time. The lesson is, if you're going to be a criminal, do your homework. Wait, I'm, I'm not a bad guy. I, no, I didn't say you're a bad guy. I said you're a criminal. What's the difference? I've known good criminals and bad cops. Bad priests, honorable thieves. You can be on one side of the law or the other. But if you make a deal with somebody, you keep your word. You can go home today with your money and never do this again. But you took something that wasn't yours, and you sold it for a profit. You're now a criminal. Good one, bad one, that's up to you. Welcome back, everybody, to the second segment of Naples Ultra, our mail time segment. And our first submission comes from a commenter, Kelmuth. And Kelmuth writes a very detailed comment, but I'm only going to, 
I'm going to read it all, sorry, and I'm only going to answer one aspect of it. Anyway, he writes, Hello, Spencer. Thanks for another very insightful podcast. I appreciate your satisfactory comment. Just to comment further on gerrymandering, some states, such as California, have created a slight solution to the problem by creating a redistricting commission that avoids some pressure from politicians. The argument against these commissions is that state legislators were created with the general power of creating districts. This goes back to the original ideas of the founding fathers that some people, such as the poor, are not fit to vote and that elected representatives are the only one who can do what's in people's best interests. If you recall, Klamath wrote a comment about gerrymandering, I believe it was two, two podcasts ago. Anyway, the EU power argument sounds like the general argument over elected judges and non-elected ones, and other unelected bureaucrats versus pandering representative battles, where it is sometimes hard to decide which is better. There definitely needs to be some significant reform to balance the power in the EU so that people don't feel like they're being treated unfairly. This is always difficult and occurs in the U.S. to a lesser extent with the U.N. Some people believe the U.S. should be independent from the U.N., but it is not a prevalent issue. In general, I feel mutual respect between the governments and the people in the EU will go a long way to easing tensions and quell some anger that Euroskeptics have. A possible discussion topic is about the power of the UN, which is relevant to this discussion, and my past comment in the previous podcast. What is your general opinion of the UN? Do you think it should have more sway or less? What kind of power, if any, should it have in enforcement, which is often non-existent? In my opinion, as someone who supports cooperation and unity, I believe some things should be mandatory so that it is fair to all nations. This is a great comment, but I only wanted to talk about the UN because I don't think that's something we have talked much about in the podcast so far. And personally, I'm the type of person that believes an international government is the next logical step in human development. Over time, we have shed the other types of identities which bind us together. We have shed sort of family identities when we were first starting out. We have then shed tribal identities as groups of people started to grow together into larger tribes. We have then shed more religious identities as our governmental systems have become more secular. Now we are trying to shed the divisions of race and ethnicity as the world ties itself closer together. Having shed these distinctions and labels over the course of history, we now generally seem to label ourselves by nationalities and countries. And I think the next natural step in evolution is to just simply see ourselves as citizens of the world and held together by the one affiliation we all share, which is our humanity. Will we see this shift in human relations within our lifetime? I personally highly doubt it. The only way I see it happening within our lifetimes is if there is some great calamity that we can only solve by working together as a species. Some people argue that climate change has the potential to be this great calamity, and while I do believe climate change is real and ongoing, I do not believe that it will destroy our society within our lifetimes. 
Another calamity could be a horrific plague or disease, or if you want to get into very ridiculous scenarios, an alien invasion. However, barring something along those lines, I think our national affiliation will remain the major human affiliation within our lifetimes. Back to the UN, because it is really the first, well, second, if you want to be technical about it, attempt at creating some sort of supranational structure to oversee the national governments of the world. However, in its current form, I don't feel that the UN is particularly effective. And one of the major flaws in the system is having this great unchanging group of five security powers who can veto each other or anything that comes from the UN on a whim. So, for those of you who don't know, when the United Nations was created after World War II, five nations were designated as permanent Security Council members in the UN. These nations are the victors in World War II, which are America, Britain, France, Russia, and China. Any one of these nations has the power to veto anything that comes out of the UN without offering any type of explanation. This is a serious problem because it can allow nations to overturn international good based on their own national interest. Russia has made extensive use of this clause, especially after the Korean War, which is really the one and only war the UN was involved in. Russia at the time was boycotting the United Nations because they refused to accept the new People's Republic of China as China's representative on the Security UN Council. That power at the time fell to the nationalist Chinese who were exiled in Taiwan. Because of Russia's boycott, when the United Nations voted to intervene in Korea, Russia was not present, and the exiled Chinese government voted for intervention. I think Russia has vowed to themselves never to make that mistake again, and up to this point certainly hasn't. I think one of the most effective ways to break this logjam would to make this security veto become more like a presidential veto. So if the Assembly of Nations was able to gather together a two-thirds majority, they could overturn a Security Council veto. And I think that would go a long way in fixing what is probably the major problem within the United Nations. So my general opinion of the UN is that it's a step in the right direction, but as it stands now, entirely ineffective. While I don't necessarily believe the UN as a whole should have more power, I certainly believe the Assembly of Nations should have more power. When it comes to military power of the United Nations, that's an issue I'm far more conflicted about. One of the powers the UN should have, I think, is if one of its member nations is struggling to combat a particularly nasty rebel or terrorist force, they should have the power to appeal to the UN for assistance, whether that assistance comes in military form or otherwise. What I don't think the UN should be in the business of, though, is invading other nations, because that opens up a can of worms that I just don't want to get into right now. In any case, thanks for the comment, Klamath. I hope that answers your question. Our next question comes from Robert Thompson, a fellow BC boy and Canadian. He writes, Bonjour, Spencer. 
Firstly, I just want to say, radical job on the podcast. Finally, something that is not quite as biased and intellectually based we can fill our boots with. Now, my question is related to the subject of public education. This is a subject I am especially passionate about. I protested for students during the last British Columbian teacher strike and am hoping to be a teacher. I'm wondering what your opinion is on the idea of subsidized post-secondary education. In addition, to the current state and value of the education system of the world, or perhaps just Canada. You see, I am what you could describe as fanatically devoted to the idea of creating an education system that is based far more around service that people can use to develop themselves into fully functioning members of society. Also, in the words of John Green, I don't like living in a country full of stupid people. Anyway, I see that subsidized post-secondary education is unbelievably beneficial. Most people with well-paying jobs require or prefer some sort of post-secondary education, whether it be in the government, trades, or a teacher. Therefore, if we do not provide the resources necessary for people to develop their careers and minds through education, is that not a blatant restriction of freedom? In addition, would it not reduce poverty and unemployment and create better governmental policies? Can't wait for your response. Robert F. Thompson, Courtney, British Columbia. Well, I can say it's been probably well over 15 years since I've last seen Courtney, British Columbia. I can say, without a doubt, Vancouver Island is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. I grew up in Victoria, British Columbia, and spent a substantial amount of my life on the island. In fact, I was there probably last year, and my wife and I went to what is one of the most incredible places on Earth, I think, and that is on the far west side of Vancouver Island are a few small towns called Eucalette and Tofino, and it's just such an amazing place. It feels like you're right on the edge of the universe, because as you look out across the Pacific Ocean and realize that the next stop is Japan, it's a pretty cool feeling. Not to mention the food, especially the seafood, was phenomenal. So if anyone ever gets the chance to visit Canada, I highly recommend you spend some time on Vancouver Island. Anyway, Robert, I am intimately familiar with the labor disputes that constantly happen between the province of British Columbia and the teachers. And I firmly come out on the teacher's side. I think they have every right to be angry, and when you consider the fact that teachers in British Columbia make the least amount in comparison to the rest of Canada, you can understand why they're upset. But this is not a question about the intricacies of the dispute between the province of British Columbia and the teachers' unions. It is a question about post-secondary education. And I, like you, am hugely in favor of subsidized post-secondary education. I don't think a society can ever go wrong in paying for the education of its citizens. It's an investment well worth undertaking. Because I believe knowledge is valuable in all its forms. And here I'm talking about the Socratic notion of knowledge which I think is a little bit different from how most people understand knowledge. In the Socratic sense, 
What knowledge does is make you better at finding the truth. Because there's a difference between knowledge and truth, and even the most knowledgeable individuals won't always find the truth. But I'd sooner ask a knowledgeable individual to find the truth than an unknowledgeable one. Consider the reason why you go to a doctor. Because he has the most knowledge on how to cure whatever ailment you're facing. He'll give you a diagnosis, which is really his best guess given the symptoms which you have described. And he might not always get the diagnosis correct, but he's got a heck of a lot better chance of guessing the correct diagnosis than Joe Schmo, who's a janitor down the street. So take this rule and apply it universally, meaning the more knowledge you have, the greater chance you have at finding the truth in any given scenario. Therefore, I believe all knowledge is valuable, and people should consume knowledge in whatever forms it happens to come in, because you never know what's going to be useful and when. Therefore, it is most prudent to increase your chances of finding the truth by acquiring the most knowledge. I want all members of society to be as equipped as possible to find the truth. Therefore, I believe the money invested into education is money well spent and money that will return itself in due time. Also, consider the ills of not paying for post-secondary education. All you end up doing is increasing the road that it takes for people to become productive members of society. Here in Canada, we have the virtue of having cheaper tuition fees than in the United States, and I had the great blessing of graduating university without any debt. My wife, on the other hand, a much different story. Going to school in the United States ensured that she had to rake up a substantial debt in order to pass. And it's a great burden on us both, and the number one factor in preventing us from getting our lives anchored on a stable footing and climbing towards a more secure future. So, to me, not paying for post-secondary education ultimately amounts to wasted money and greatly impedes the ability of those who have recently graduated from university from actually becoming productive members of society. What I personally believe is the most common sense way to subsidize post-secondary education is to either eliminate or substantially forgive student loans upon graduation. This way you can ensure that people just aren't going to university to spend taxpayer money, they actually have to have something to show for it before their debt is forgiven. So this way, I think you get the benefits of having more people with post-secondary education and help to reduce abuse of the system. So now, obviously, I've descended into the depths of firebrand socialism. So I really need someone to ask another question about Donald Trump so I can defend him again, which was one of the criticisms I got from the last podcast, that I was cutting him too much slack. But... For now, let's shelve it. Thanks so much for the question, Robert. I hope that Christy Clark's reign of terror hasn't been so bad since I've left the province. Our next question comes from Liam Smith. He writes, Hello again, Spencer. Though it saddens me the podcast is getting shorter, I'm still thoroughly enjoying it. 
This week, I would like to ask your opinion on independence movements. I may be mistaken, but I believe in the past you have mentioned that you do not like them. Is your opinion still the same? If so, can you explain why you're against them? And if not, what has changed your mind? Do you feel that some independence movements are more justified than others? Personally, I feel that one's opinion on independence movements is heavily affected by where they are from. As someone in Canada, a country treated rather well in comparison to countries that Britain has controlled and gained its independence peacefully, might you have a different view on it as compared to someone from a country like the United States or Ireland? On a side note, Liam mentions two things. He recommends Mike Duncan's history podcasts, which he has two of them, A History of Rome and an ongoing podcast on revolutions. And I have listened to Mike's podcasts before, uh, particularly his History of Rome series, which is excellent, especially for someone who is getting interested in history. Mike does a great job in giving you a very large overview of Roman history and hitting the highlights along the way. So he makes it easy for those of you who want to explore deeper into certain periods of Roman history to know which ones you might want to explore and which ones you might not want to explore. He also mentions the upcoming Irish general election, which I didn't know was happening in April of this year. So that's definitely something I'd like to talk about as the election date approaches. But at this point in time, I don't know much about the Irish political system or the parties running in it. So I want to take some time to do my own research before I speak in great detail about it. One thing I did want to mention when talking about Mike Duncan's History of Rome podcast is that I actually have a list of about a dozen or so people who I'd like to invite on the podcast to have a discussion. Not necessarily an interview, but more an exchange of ideas. And Mike Duncan is one of the people on that list that once the podcast gets a little bit more established, I'm going to write to and request that they come on the show. But who knows how far in the future that will be. Returning to your question about independence movements, my opinion of independence movements has been primarily framed through our personal independence movement here in Canada, which is the Quebec independence movement. And the Quebec independence movement is not something I have a lot of sympathy for. I love having Quebec as part of this great country. I love French Canadians and I think they're an integral part to this little federation of ours. The fact that Canada remains as one of the only handful of countries that is officially bilingual and can make a bilingual policy work is a source, I suppose, of great pride for me as a Canadian. And if Quebec ever separated from this country, it would probably break my heart. Fortunately, though, at least for now, the Quebec independence movement is on the downswing. Separatists in power within Quebec have taken a beating over the last five years and remain at what is their lowest point of power and influence in an extraordinarily long time. Personally, I don't think there is any good argument for Quebec to secede from this country. And I felt the same way about Scotland. And I was happy that Scotland voted to remain within the UK in September of now two years ago. And generally speaking, the reason I have a lower opinion 
of independence movements is because I'm the kind of guy who always wants everybody to get along. So I generally tend to lean towards the side of unity. Another thing that bothers me is that separatists rarely consider the effects of their secession on other members of that country. Take, for example, when it looked like Quebec seceding was a serious possibility here in Canada. This was about 20 years ago. People wondered what would happen to our Atlantic provinces, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland, as they would be completely cut off from the rest of Canada by now another country dividing them. It would make it extremely difficult for Atlantic Canadians to stay within the Canadian Confederation, so most people assumed they would probably get absorbed by the United States. And with the loss of virtually our entire East Coast, it would have significant impacts on Canadians all over the country. And I have the same feeling for those in the rest of the UK who would be adversely affected by a Scottish departure of the United Kingdom. What I will say, though, is that while, for the most part, in Western countries, I feel like independence and secessionist movements are utterly unnecessary. When I look around the rest of the world, I see secessionist movements that desperately needed to have happened or to happen. One example would be the recent creation of South Sudan as a country. To me, this is a secessionist movement that absolutely needed to happen because it was clear that the Islamic-dominated north parts of Sudan and the more Christian-dominated parts of southern Sudan just couldn't get along together. As well, when I look out across the Middle East, I see a slew of countries that simply don't need to exist. One such country is Iraq, which is comprised of three major ethnic identities, Shiite Muslims, Sunni Muslims, and Kurds, who have all expressed their extreme distaste in having to submit their will to another one of these groups. Countries like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan are simply vague geographical expressions which have been written onto the map by colonial powers such as France and Britain after World War I. So secessionist movements like the Kurds in this example garner an extreme amount of sympathy and support from me. Ultimately though, Liam, I think you're very right in saying that someone's opinions of independence movements are shaped by the country from which they are viewing it. And I'm sure the extraordinarily complicated politics around Northern Ireland's role in the British Isles has informed your viewpoint, which I think would be a good discussion topic at some point or another. In any case, thanks so much for the question, Liam. I hope that was a satisfactory response. Our last question comes from James Phillips. And James writes, Dear Spencer, In the last episode, you spoke about the beginning of change from governmental positions being about power into being about ideology and beliefs. My question is what happens once the other ideologies are defeated? Although we most likely won't see it in our lifetime, if an ideology did win over the rest and the whole world adopted it, would we see a shift of political debate into another category? Sincerely, superfan James Phillips. Great question, James. 
The only thing I would say, though, is that one ideology essentially has already won out, and the political debates we have currently generally amount to deciding what degree we will subscribe to the current ideology, which is liberal democracy combined with neoliberal or neoconservative economics. The fact that this idea is so pervasive in our society makes it difficult for us to imagine that anything else could exist within our lifetimes. I think about a quote from famous Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek, where he talks about how it's easier for us as a species to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of so-called capitalism. That it's easier for us to imagine the complete destruction of our society rather than the changing of our society. I would also disagree and say that ideologies are never really truly defeated, I feel, because ideas are immortal. Ideas transcend our mortal coil and will live in our consciousness for eternity. Ideologies such as communism and fascism aren't destroyed and could resurface potentially at any time. We talked about how communism might come back in the future or some different brand of communism. We also talked about Donald Trump and his parallels to a certain fascist ideology and a certain fascist dictator that has existed in the past. And I certainly don't believe he is a fascist dictator in the sense of Adolf Hitler or could even hope to have that amount of power. What I will say, though, is that Mark Twain said it best. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does sometimes rhyme. And Donald Trump, if you will, is dropping some pretty slick rhymes. What I am a little bit curious about, though, is when you say if an ideology did win over the rest of the world and it was adopted, would we see the shift of the political debate into another category? Do you mean that politics will become about something greater than even ideologies and beliefs? Which would certainly be interesting, but I'm not quite sure what that would be, unless politics became about some sort of overarching duty for us to always maximize the human good. What I'd really love to see, though, is to get a group of some of the greatest philosophers and academics of our time and discuss how potentially our governmental systems might look different 500 years in the future. Can we even conceive of what that might be like? Are we going to still have the same basic system that we have now? To me, I think this is inconceivable. But who knows? I mean, I can't certainly envision what future government is going to look like. It's like trying to imagine what the fourth dimension is like or something along those lines. We just simply don't have adequate information or measurement tools to make any sort of educated guess. Anyway, thanks for the question, James. I hope that answer was satisfactory. I did want to talk a little bit about current events before we left. I wanted to talk about the fact that Obama gave his last State of the Union yesterday. And I just think this is a real bizarre moment that I felt like would almost never come. I remember watching Obama's first speech when he was elected President of the United States eight years ago. Well, almost eight years ago now. 
And we're finally coming to a close on the Obama years. That soon we will be having discussions about Obama's impact on both the United States of America and the rest of the world. When evaluating his presidency, I think it will be very interesting to see what side of the coin we will come out on. Also, the Iowa caucus is coming up very shortly, and this really signifies the start of the presidential campaign in my mind. We also have some insane poll numbers coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire that show Bernie Sanders in the lead in both cases. And for the first time, I think it might be safe to say that Bernie Sanders has a substantial chance at becoming the next president of the United States. Personally, I'm hoping for a Sanders-Trump race. It would be an historic race, and probably one of the most interesting political spectacles of at least my lifetime. And this brings me to the question for this week's episode. In 20 years, how do you think Obama's presidency will be remembered? If you'd like to submit a response to this question, or submit any other topic, feedback, or question to the podcast, please write me at my email, which is spencer at npupodcast.com. Or alternatively, just comment in the archive section underneath the episode name. And with that, we are at the end of episode 5 of Naples Ultra. I hope you guys all had a great time listening. And until next week, stay curious, my friends. Now, here are the responses to last week's question. Andre writes, who I believe may have gone under the moniker of Ronald Reagan in a previous lifetime, but I could be wrong, writes in and says, to answer your question regarding freedom of expression between a public figure and a private citizen, it is my personal opinion there shouldn't be any new rules to distinguish the two. Because if we do, we create a precedent in which any political leader with less than good intentions can and will use in the future to destroy any forms of freedom of expression as an example. Claudius writes in and says, As to your question, I'm writing from the U.S. Public figures should be held to a higher standard than private figures because they typically have a lot more influence, which leads to more potential for harm. I think they should face an expanded interpretation of the limitations of speech based on incitement, so that if they give a speech and someone is inspired by that speech to cause harm or damages or something else, then that public figure should be held financially liable. Liam writes in and says, In response to this week's question, I feel that public figures should have the same rights as private citizens. While it may be tempting to agree when thinking about Mr. Trump, what if the roles were reversed? What if a politician was trying to impose civil rights or protect the environment and companies that were opposed to these reforms threatened to pull industry from this area unless he is stopped? If that happened, there would be a public outcry. We cannot have a double standard in place just because we don't agree with what Mr. Trump is saying. Awesome responses this week, and I'll see you all in seven days.